Welcome to Communion and Shalom. In this podcast, we are exploring how the biblical and historic Christian faith can engage sexuality, ethnicity, culture, and our local communities as we pursue the flourishing of God's kingdom. Our goal is to engage these topics charitably and with nuance. While we're largely shaped by our side B, post-liberal, localist, and multi-ethnic perspectives, and we'll explain each of these perspectives on the show, we're eager to engage a variety of voices. Hey everyone, this is TJ Espinoza. This is David Frank. And we are here to talk about kind of a new goings-on in the life of side B Christians, mostly in the U.S. And we are here to talk about what is happening in the Presbyterian Church of America related to their recent General Assembly. And actually, I think you got it wrong. It's Presbyterian Church in America. Oh, I'm sorry, in America. It's very clear <laughs> that they are of the kingdom of God, got but it. they are you know, in the world, not of it. Okay, that's good to know. We want to definitely represent them very well and be very faithful to how they're trying to portray themselves in this. So as David Frank has mentioned in prior episodes, he's part of the Reformed tradition. So he's going to give some background to this this sort of issue. And we have friends who are part of the PCA church who some, even queer friends and some obviously straight friends. So David Frank, we're going to turn it over to you. Please just kind of tell us the basics of the Presbyterian Church of America. So any of our listeners can kind of understand what's happening. Yep. The PCA church was founded in 1973, breaking off from another denomination with concerns about theological liberalism in that original denomination. Now the kind of main contrast between the PCA and its uh, kind of theologically liberal parallel denomination would be the PCUSA, which the PCUSA affirms gay marriages and would allow for gay pastors to be ordained. Um, That's just who are in a current, like, gay relationship where they're having sex. Correct. Yeah. And so a lot of the PCA just really wants to make sure that we don't go down that theological liberalism that has happened in this country, that they don't fall prey to just cultural winds, but remain really biblically faithful. And now, as there are a lot of people in the PCA denomination who are comfortable using queer language, who helped who helped support or participated in the revoice conference that began a few years ago which sought the fl- flourishing of queer christians and was comfortable with using lgbtq language as well as just same-sex attracted language revoice is again a conservative side b ministry and organization but uh, a lot of really conservative Christians see any usage of that language as indicators that theological liberalism is is sliding in mm-hmm. into people's worldviews, and they really want to crush that. Two years ago at General Assembly, a lot of this came to head, as, and people were wondering what to do with Reboys. Can we make statements against it? How do we make sure we're not aligning with what they view as theological liberalism? And in good Presbyterian fashion, the General Assembly issued out a study committee, a one-year group of people from various perspectives to write up a report to help document, not 
create any new laws or, you know, like legislation within the denomination, but a representative report of what do we believe as PCA Presbyterians about sexuality? And they created this 50 plus page report, has these kind of 12 statements. That is a decent semi-balanced report that professes just like, yeah, true beliefs on sexuality that no one in the PCA really disagrees with in terms of what it does say. There are pastors like Greg Johnson who essentially wishes that we spent less energy on a study report and more energy on creating documentation that would say, we love gay people and less energy on nuancing out why exactly we disagree with gay sexuality, gay sex and such. And so people read his opposition at times as being that, oh, he's pushing for theological liberalism, but essentially his concern is, no, I know what the Bible says. I'm not worried about defining that. What I am worried about is that a lot of people in our culture don't hear what the Bible says about God loving them and sending his son to die for them. And that the, that moralism is getting in the way of people hearing the gospel. I think before we continue, we should introduce Greg Johnson, the pastor. Yeah. Because actually you mentioned him, but we haven't said yet who he was. Yeah. Greg Johnson is a PCA pastor in St. Louis, Missouri. He would identify as gay about two years ago, I think shortly after Revoice or around that time. Which he hosted the original Revoice at mm -hmm. his church in um, St. Louis in the state of Missouri. Yep. Memorial Presbyterian Church is the name of his church. And that was the first location of Revoice Conference. So it wasn't officially a, it wasn't a Presbyterian event, but they freely let them, you know, use the building space for this ministry. And he wrote a Christianity Today uh, article in May of 2019 titled, I used to hide my shame. Now I take shelter under the gospel. How a gay atheist teenager discovered Jesus and stopped living undercover. And so in there, he freely talks about how he was gay and he still is gay. And mm -hmm. now he has found Jesus. He's been freed in the gospel and that hasn't led to, you know, changes in his sexual orientation, but it's led to a drastic change in his life. And so he lives the life of a, of a celibate Christian as a pastor of this church. Mm -hmm. And I think this article was his coming public coming out. I think previously people didn't know in public terms that he was not straight or gay, as he says, calls himself. Is that right? Uh, not sure. Not, not too I'm sure. I didn't really know about him until yeah, all, around Got all it. the same time yeah. uh, when I first came to, I went to that first Revoice conference. Makes sense. I also something else I wanted to mention, and we're not going to go deep on this, but I think one of the, in the, the study document that David Frank mentioned, one of the key issues was arguments over the status of the moral status of same-sex desire. To what extent is it sinful or not? And they often contrasted their perspective from the, as a Protestant one versus the Catholic one, which apparently in their perspective, at least, we should have some more Catholics, but Catholics do not necessarily say that having that desire itself is sinful. And a lot of this is kind of lost in the semantics that people are pulling up old theological language that they're not actually always very familiar with sure. and trying to use it to uh, make a point that they believe. And, and so what's happening in the Reformed doctrines, 
it talks about, in a sense, two uses of the word sin. One would be that kind of original sin, that fallenness Mm. that leads to just the overall how in us and in this world, things are not as they are. That's because of big capital S sin. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that our sexual desires are not in accordance with God's design at times, that would be a result of sin, a reality of indwelling sin. So just when you love things in the wrong order, when you love your you know, friend or family member over and above loving God, anything that you love over and above God, that is sin, even if you're not specifically acting on that. Just that desire or that misordered love what is what they might call concupiscence, uh, which is this like old theological word that no one, you know, uses from the pulpit, but that's what they're getting at. And then little s sins would be those discrete acts when you act out of your brokenness, your fallenness, your woundedness, then you are committing sins. And what the Reformed would like to say is that you can repent from both of those, but obviously there's different ways that you repent from a specific sin against a God or a brother that I did this, you know, and I repent of that versus, Lord, my heart is disordered. Help me turn from that and, and rightly order my heart. Mm. And, and so that's what the Reformed are saying. So there'll be at times that Greg Johnson and he has apologized for not always being clear, has said, no, being gay isn't a sin. And what he means is that like, I did not commit a sin just by having this sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. What he is not saying, what he has clarified in follow-up conversations and writings is he's not saying that a, you know, disordered sexual orientation that puts you against God's design is not part of big S sin, but critics of Greg Johnson and the like look at times when he or other people have said like, stop being, you know, so ashamed and so bogged down, um, by just the fact that your sexual orientation isn't straight and have been like, oh, he doesn't think it's sin. He thinks that it is actually part of, part of God's design and they're not giving charitable reads. So we have all of that kind of coming in. A study report was done. People have eh, mixed feelings on it. And one of the first things that happened at this now general assembly, it happened two years later because of COVID and yeah, basically they skipped a year for general assembly that they approved the study report. And there are a number of people who yeah kind of expressed, ah, You know, I have poems with it, but none of them were really about actual disagreements with the doctrine. One thing of importance in this study report is that it did address language. How do we think about language of people identifying as gay or queer, bisexual, et cetera? And what the study report said is that in general, we think that it is not prudential to use it, Mm -hmm. but We understand reasons that people do, and we're not going to say that it's immoral. We think that it is often unwise. And some people took that as saying, hey, look, they're they're leaving room for it. And then other people read that as saying, oh, if you're a truly a wise, mature Christian, you know, which you should be in order to be a pastor, then you would never use this language. Mm. And and so even different ways that people are trying to use a study report and, and yeah, you can go go check that out. We'll we'll link to it in the show notes. 
But then what really made this General Assembly interesting is these different what they call overtures, basically think of amendments to a constitution. In this case, they're overtures to the book of church order, which is the constitution policies, procedures for just how we do things. How do we know, mm. uh, yeah, really what the process is to ordain someone to be an elder in the church? What are their qualifications? How do we look at that? And they just expound off Bible verses, add some procedures, add ways that the church can nominate them. And it's all well-documented. A presbytery is just your local geographic group of churches. So we're in Minnesota. And so the Minnesota presbytery is actually combined, I think, with like North Dakota, maybe South Dakota, and it's called the Siouxlands Presbytery, very large region. Whereas the Gulf Coast Presbytery is just the southern region of Florida and Alabama. So much smaller regions because there's a lot more churches in the south. Anyways, different presbyteries, different churches, came together and wrote up these documents, these overtures, amendments to say, hey, we think we need to change our book of church order and make it more clear. And they, in the document, it talks about, here's the Bible verses, here's what we're reasoning, here's why we think it needs more clarity, and then make these commendations. So first, before we get into any specific overtures, just the understanding of the process. First, you have to bring this to the General Assembly, which is the National Conference. It has to go through an overtures committee, which will kind of filter through them, maybe combine them, turn them down, sometimes amend them. And then that overtures committee will then offer it up to the floor for everybody there to vote. I believe it's about every church can have up to two votes if they send two delegates to vote. So for every overture, they can have two votes if they send two delegate delegates. Yeah, yeah. Once it reaches to that general assembly floor, sure, sure. every church gets two votes. But if you, no one from your church shows up, you don't get your votes. I get it. I get it. And so people generally kind of read the cultural winds of the PCA on three fronts: the uh, more conservative, maybe Pietist wing, a kind of centrist wing, and a kind of missional, semi-progressive wing. And a lot of these overtures, I would say predominantly, are coming out of that kind of conservative pietist wing, and they're trying to be more strict about language and, and really ruling out any theological liberalism, um, specifically in the ordination pastor's process. In a lot of ways, I think you could say to, to, fair, to in a pointed way against Greg Johnson or pastors in his similar position or pastors... Uh, who would be kind of in his line of expression and thinking. This is a question in your kind of home base of Minnesota, the, the congregations of Presbyterians you know, where do they kind of fit in these, the wings you're talking about? Yeah, that's hard to know because we have, a, because there's so few of them, I'm in the Twin Cities, but most of the other are kind of more rural or outer suburban mm -hmm. Presbyterian churches. Mm -hmm. And so I've generally assumed that a lot of them are more on that kind of conservative wary of culture mm -hmm. side of things um but potentially they're more centrist sure whereas the churches right here in the twin cities i think are more likely just to be engaged in modern conversation and that's where i think a lot of this it's difficult we have people coming from you know <laughs> all these different parts of the u.s who you know different cities different states have different cultures have even different understandings of 
when I say gay, this is what it means. Yeah. The U.S. is no monolith, as you've mentioned in the past. Yeah. And so that makes it difficult for people to try to be adding to this book of church order, which rules over all of them out of an expression of of their specific culture. Hmm. And there were people like Kevin DeYoung who spoke against a lot of these overtures saying, y'all, we, we did a study report. We have shown that we are in agreement on our doctrine and let us not try to delineate every single line item of how things work out in these different contexts, but let people in their different presbyteries and their different churches apply and go the book of church order, apply the doctrines with due wisdom in their context and, and not try to make this a super long, you know, prescriptive manual of how to dot every I and cross every T. Kevin DeYoung, can you tell us who he is? Kevin DeYoung is a PCA pastor. Oh, now is he in New York? I can't remember. Uh, I think he's somewhere up in that Northeast area. And I would read him as kind of, if you haven't listened to our sides episode yet, he'd be kind of side Y, but maybe overall kind of the centrist position. I don't, from my reading of him, he really doesn't like sexual orientation framework. He doesn't want people to use the language, but he doesn't want the book of church order to be prescribing these things, especially with the fact that language can change a lot. Sure. So, yeah. Why are we, why are we trying to be so overly specific rather than saying, guys, we're ultimately saying nothing's changed. Our beliefs haven't changed on anything. Sure. So why are we making changes to the book of church order if we're holding to the same gospel? Hmm. You know, what, 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 how would you characterize on this, using the sides language, how would you characterize the Presbyterians, you know? Yeah. I don't know a ton of. Presbyterians and Reformed people from the South, I, I generally would read that if, if we put these kind of, you know, uh, missional progressive wing would often be side B leaning. The centrists are kind of side B, Y, like they lean Y, but they don't want to be too critical of me. And then side X or side Y I guess that right wing potentially pietist would be maybe a harsher side of side, side Y or potentially side X. Mm -hmm. That's my general read. Yeah. Uh, so it's clear the term progressive doesn't, you're using a framework that's common in the U.S., but they're not actually progressives in the sense that most U.S. people would. Yeah. Them. Yeah. So. It's very, the, the progressive missional people that the, you know, one side is very afraid are, you know, pushing into theological liberalism. Mm -hmm are actually incredibly biblically conservative and most of the culture would still, you know, it's kind of the side B position. People are like, oh, what? You, you don't think gay marriage is all right? Does that mean you hate gay people? <laughs> Wait, but you're, you might be gay yourself. And, you know, it confuses them because they associate this kind of either like you love gay people or you hate them. And they're trying to find this, you know, middle way where, you, you know, you are loving them without completely trying to obliterate talking about that experience and in kind of the ways that culture might. Mm -hmm. So we have these kind of three wings that are coming. Um, and it sounds like from my reading that PCA general assembly this year was mostly stacked with those kind of conservative, I don't, I keep using pietists, but I'll just use conservative churches that they made sure to send 
as many delegates as they could. And so we might see at next year's General Assembly a kind of balancing and getting uh, a lot of the other churches who might be more centrist or that kind of, you know, I'll, I'll just say missional, yeah. uh, aiming for cultural relevance. They might say, oh, wow, look what happened. Now we need to set, see more delegates. Time will tell. Procedurally, in order to actually change the Book of Church Order, some overtures got passed. But this is just step one of three. First, it has to get approved at one general assembly going through all this overture and overture committee processes and then voted. Second, it needs to go out to every single presbytery. I don't know how many there are. And it has to be approved by two thirds of them. And then third, it has to come back to general assembly and be voted on again. So change takes time, which is mm -hmm. good. You don't want yeah. people just being able to stack one general assembly and then change this practice and, and start making big changes without everybody's involvement. Mm -hmm. From an article I read, this is one of the most highly attended general assemblies for this church ever. Mm -hmm. So, so some people are talking in terms that this was a really like decisive win for the, what you call the conservative wing. So. I'm wondering if it, I'm just curious when you think about next year, I'm curious what will happen next year. Yeah. I don't know what will happen. I know that I've seen churches in the PCA who are as uh, kind of conservative, fundamentalist leaning, uh, already start talking about wanting to send two delegates to general assembly next year. Wow. Yeah. And that, that, that's important for them to uh, participate in this really important topic. Let's go straight into the overtures. There were quite a few overtures, over five that in some way related to this conversation on sexual attraction, ordination, how those things get dealt with. I want to bring three to mention. The first is overture 16. This came out of the Westminster Presbytery and it was commending that the, this clause be added men who identify as homosexual, even those who identify as homosexual and claim to practice celibacy in that self-identification are disqualified from holding office in the PCA. So this is one overture that did not make it through the overtures committee. In part, they just like, ah, this is not great wording. This is not where we want to go or it overlapped too much with other overtures that felt like they were potentially better expressions. So this one was just kind of like, it's just weird. I remember before General Assembly started looking at it, like, I don't know anybody who identifies as quote unquote homosexual. <laughs> it's just like not a language that people really use. It's very, kind of feel very clinical. You mm -hmm. um, I know are straight people who are in the U.S. were more distant from the conversation. Like, you know what I mean? They still might use the word, but other queer people I know in the U.S. don't use that term for the same reason you're mm -hmm. talking about anymore. Yeah. So the next one, and this is one that. Yeah. You also have to mention though, from this one, there's this, this kind of game, this ploy who claim to practice celibacy uh, as if they're just so skeptical that there aren't people who are actually trying to do this. <laughs> You know what I mean? It just yeah. dismissive, I think, at best. At best, it's dismissive. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's just like, why would they word it that? Why would they say, 
even those who identify sexual and remain celibate. Why do they say and the celibacy? It's my goodness. Uh, it feels very uncharitable or like, oh, they say they're practicing celibacy. So I guess this is being shared just to see where, just to show perspective where some people are coming from. This, as you mentioned, th this did not actually pass overture committee. Hallelujah. Yeah. Uh, the overture committee did not push this one through. Overture 23 is one that did end up going through and it went through several iterations before it came to the floor. And there was actually a minority report of enough people who were voting against it coming to the floor for a vote that are able to write up a recommendation. And I don't understand the nuances, but I think something pretty unique happened in some last minute changes to, to this overture that went to the floor. And so it at first read that men who self-identify as gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian should not de be deemed qualified. This was then updated to say men who are known by self-reputation or self-profession according to their remaining sinfulness, which shall not be deemed acceptable. But then, and that I think was borrowing from another overture, so they're, they're trying to match language. But what ended up coming to the floor was something a lot more complex and maybe confusing. Here's the new, the, uh, the amended language that actually got approved. Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. Those who profess an identity, such as but not limited to gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, that undermines or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of fallen desires, such as but not limited to same-sex attraction, or by denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions, are not qualified for ordained office. So a lot of people saw this as a big win. Look, we're, we're making a very clear stand to not allow theological liberalism, theological, you know, unorthodoxy into this denomination. And whereas you'd have other people who disagreed with this overture, didn't want it to happen to say, we have not changed our definitions of morality and this didn't clarify this. This has just made it confusing and, and more difficult for gay Christians to feel welcome because it feels like they may be getting targeted in this denomination. Mm -hmm. um, Especially because there's a lot to say. I don't know if you want to have a few more things. Well, before I, I just, something. the state, it's just a... It's confusing. It says those who profess an identity that undermines or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ are not qualified for ordained office. And it has this clause that says either by, and then it lists a bunch of things that could be denied, denying the sinfulness of fallen desire. We talked about that earlier, denying progressive sanctification or by failing to pursue spirit empowered victory over sins in our life. Are they just giving these extra clauses to help you understand this is what that identity, when you use those words, gay Christian, is always doing? Or that 
if you use an identity that undermines it in those cases, like you have to show that you are definitely denying the sinfulness of the fallen desire or like, do you get what I mean, TJ? Of like, I don't get what you mean. Uh, what we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'm just going to first start with, in hearing about this conversation among other side B people, mostly on the internet, it's hard for all of us not to see this being read either as a side Y or a side X statement. And so I'd be skeptical of both. So I'd be people get angry by either. So we can talk about this. Let's say you can use them, these words. They should not profess an identity, not such as, but not limit to gay Christian, same sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms. Obviously that's a side Y general stance that undermines or contradicts their new identities and their identity as new creations in Christ. So again, that's pretty side Y even if side people don't deny the sinfulness of fallen desire because we have a particular way we think about what the terms, how we can use them in life. They also, a lot of side people, they read or by denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, there's worry that this is going to be read to again, initiate, reinitiate side X, like X gay sort of ministries. Like, because progressive sanctification is general enough. It can be just like you mentioned in the past, I think, um, talking about just the general signification of Christian people, like battling their sinful passions, right? Like lust, or it could be up to, you must become straight again. <laughs> or additionally, failing to pursue spirit empowered victory over the sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions. Like, what does that mean? Does it mean like, like if you're not pursuing what? So you're not pursuing, like not using the words anymore, or you're just not pursuing just not pursuing like having lustful actions in your life. For example, not pursuing falling to pornography and falling to masturbation and obviously adultery and fornication. I, we don't know the whole, we don't know all the spans of what they mean in this statement. So since it's mostly easy read as a side Y or side X document, I think most people are from the side B community that I know, including myself, are pretty skeptical of this sort of statement from this Overture 23. And I think what I hope that as different presbyteries are reviewing this as to whether they want to, you know, give the thumbs up, that they're thinking not just about, oh, well, you know, I think that progressive sanctification and spirit empowered victory are things that I support, mm -hmm. but are thinking really wisely about how is this actually going to get used and applied and what are, what's the potential collateral damage that could be happening and on one end, I want to sympathetically say like, hey, if I'm, you know, pursuing ordination as a pastor in the PCA, and if I've used the, the uh, phrase same-sex attracted Christian, someone, you know, has a recording of me and they're like, hey, you use this phrase and, and we think that you're denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, then I could just give a good theological explanation of how I do indeed support and believe in progressive sanctification, meaning like an increase in holiness over time, like a practical lived out holiness and repentance of sin, et cetera, that I could just give that defense and then move on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, there, there's supposed to be other pastors and elders there who help weigh through these and discern and make sure that we actually have pastors who are suitable to be pastors of congregations. Oh, but it's just such a divisive and, you know, people just speak past each other so much. And so, yeah, it, it, I, 
I'm wor- I would overhaul hope that this doesn't get passed. I'm a little bit of an optimist. Like, oh, even if it does, this is how I think people could work around it or work within it. Not to deny the, like, you know, not to uh, achieve, like, you know, to do something biblically immoral, but to not be worried about being unfairly targeted by, let's say, far edge, like Sidex people by it, but that they could say, hey, even though at times I use same-sex attracted Christian, that I really do believe all the doctrines that underlie, that that are trying to be incorporated into this statement. Mm-hmm. A lot of people saw this as a, a big victory in that it didn't just sit on identity language, but it brought in these theological beliefs about what really matters. They're still, they're still engaging in identity language, but maybe it's not centered as much. And that's where I, I don't, and that's where like, if it's not about identity language, why they even include it, you know, like, why couldn't they just say that anyone who contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ by it's, you know, denying the sinfulness of fallen desire, dot, 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 et cetera. Why didn't they just do that? Why did they bring in this identity language as if that is fundamental? And that is essentially the difference between, I guess, side B and side Y. Side B do not say you have to use certain language, but they just hold identity language more loosely that using that language doesn't mean you're undermining your identity as a new creation in Christ, that that can still be fundamental. But also, but I think that emerges from, that's like the, the plant that grows from the soil, but the, there's a deep, there's deeper differences between side B and side Y about how we evaluate the moral status of desire, how do Christians engage in a cultural context? How do we think about just how can, can there be goods in same sex desire or are we just tied to only the European American version of Christian marriage? Like there's, there's just more like what you're saying is true, but it's emerging from deeper soil, deeper dynamics in the soil of the conversation. That's bringing the difference between B and side Y. Yeah, the ability to have a nuanced conversation of is same-sex attraction merely, is it only talking about sinful, same-sex sexual, mm-hmm. you know, lust? Uh, or are, the, are you actually trying to identify other stuff in that conversation too? So it's kind of a mess of a statement in that it feels like it'd actually be kind of difficult to even apply, like know when and when you're not supposed to apply it. Like if I were an elder in a PCA church and like, am I just, I, am I just looking at what language they happen to use and then, you know, check the box or do I have to go through and show these different situations which they're are denying, you know, the primacy of their identity in Christ. So it's not, it seems very confusing, you know, for a document that's called the book of church order, it doesn't seem like it actually give very clear orderly. Yeah, that's right. It's just, uh, it is too open to interpretation as you're mentioning. So I would totally agree with that. So yeah, I would advise Christians in the PCA to be going to their elders, to be going to their presbytery. And if, if you're not already, you know, like kind of against this overture, maybe to at least be asking clarifying questions that help bring to a point practically, what does this mean for Christians who are seeking ordination as elders, pastors, or deacons and who 
may or may not use this language or who are same sex attracted? Are you just saying beware your language or what does it mean? And get that clarity and help. And maybe they need that to help think through situationally so that it is uh, done with wisdom rather than just kind of like, oh, it seems to align with our theology. Because that's what I'd be concerned about that a lot of people are, would be approving it, especially if they're maybe more centrist. Like, well, yeah, it's like, I don't disagree with it, mm -hmm. but are, yeah, really taking into account what effects this might have on people who are, who are qualified to lead in God's church, but might be unfairly critiqued. So I think I'm so hoping if you're, if you're a straight Presbyterian person listening to this right now, I'm hoping you would talk with the people, side B Christians you may know, or others who may not use that term, but are kind of of that belief. Just ask them, what do you think about this? Like, send to their voices, ask them, how would you, how do you engage this question? My, my fear is always some of these elders, I think they've never talked to like a queer person. Hmm. I could be, that's obviously, I don't know. It could be wrong. But or, it, or it, specifically, maybe a queer Christian yes. who is thinking about, you know, leadership or service yeah. in the church. I mean, it's so easy to just be like those others over there rather than actually saying, meeting someone, talking with them, realizing they're somehow part of, they're part of you, they belong together with you. Something else is one more overture we should maybe go through. Yeah, it's really quick. We won't read the whole thing. It's Overture 37. What it does, I'll just give an overview, is it adds a subnote into when looking at the qualifications for an officer in their ordination. Some of the things in the list are like, you should look at their knowledge of the Bible and their understanding of PCA workings and, of course, the duties of their actual office of elder or deacon, like, can they do those things? And then at what they want to do in this is add a clause that says, also make sure to do a really thorough examination of each nominee's personal character, you know, before that they might, before they might get voted in for this, you know, for service as a pastor, elder, or deacon. And what it lists, it, so it, it lists, you know, gives special attention, specific attention to potentially notorious concerns such as but not limited to relational sins, sexual immorality, including homosexuality, fornication, and pornography, addictions, abusive behavior, and financial mismanagement. And it, especially as you read the rest of it, it talks about like, you know, give special attention that if they have any persistent desires that, you know, they're working against it, that they're depending on the Holy Spirit and union with Christ, that they're doing this by grace and bearing fruit. And then there's this clause of, he should not be known by reputation or self-profession according to his remaining sinfulness. For example, homosexual desires, etc. <laughs> but rather by the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. So I'd say that clause there towards the end especially makes it like, oh, it feels like you included these other things of financial mismanagement. Mm -hmm. But really what you care about is attacking... Uh, maybe a pastor like Greg Johnson who yeah. has a testimony of him talking about how, you know, him growing up gay is part of like his life and, and how yeah. like Christ met him and homosexual desires are part of this testimony. And, and so it's like, again, what, what is, you know, by reputation 
um, and known by, you know, self-profession is that again, I think it, you know, a lot of people are reading that and hoping that like, oh, it's that's anyone who uses that identity language, they are being by self-profession known by remaining sinfulness. Thus they're not qualified. Okay. And you know, <laughs> I'm just like, what would be the equivalent for these other ones of financial mismanagement, et cetera. My positive read of like, oh yeah, any, you know, if you're like, oh, hey, you know, this neighbor, he's a, you know, wants to be a pastor in our church. What do you think of him? Like, oh yeah, he, he really mismanages the funds and he's, you know, pretty abusive towards his children. Like he's being known by a practiced sin, like obviously does not qualify for like a leader in the church. Man, you know, the, the reality of abuse, financial mismanagement, sexual, you know, addictions or abuse in the church, like by leaders is so incredibly destructive. Yeah. So there is a part that I like, oh, I wouldn't mind uh, a really thorough examination of, you know, potentially notorious concerns in general. Mm -hmm. I'm all about rigorous knowledge of someone's character. Uh, or their place as a leader. Yeah. You know, like, let's get into our past. And I'm glad that it includes all these other categories. It's, it's just this part where it seems to be really targeting indwelling sinfulness. Um, mm. In any of these other situations, you think about financial mismanagement. Let's say someone was like, man, I am so greedy. Um, I just have this huge inbuilt thing. I've never actually stolen anybody's funds or mismanaged funds, but I know I just have this huge desire. And normally that probably wouldn't get talked about much. Yeah, I doubt it would be talked like, about. There's no, we don't have any like identity language. It's not a big cultural topic for people to be talking about how they are, aren't orientated towards money aside from like capitalist and anti-capitalist maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it wouldn't get brought up. And so... In a similar way, you might think, okay, then no, then why would we let people self-identify, you know, for this indwelling sinful corruption that they're wanting to have, that they have sexual attraction in a way that doesn't accord with, you know, their sex. Then it's just like, well, it's just because this cultural moment we're in. In the U.S. context, where they focus on psychological states of each individual, quote unquote? Yes. However, it is part of the cultural discourse. We can talk about it too, I guess. Because it seems, I guess it's part because I have a more neutral understanding of what same-sex attraction could involve because we could think that there's mixed elements to it. Well, so we, if we agree with that account, then we're willing to talk about it. And even, I would say, even if you have a like, primarily negative account of it, mm -hmm. I just don't have a problem talking about sinfulness. The... Most common example would be like Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Like even if you're like, yeah, there's nothing redeemable about being an alcoholic. This is not, you know, mixed into my desire for friendship with, sure. you know, sure. good things of this world. It is just an abuse and an idolatry. Maybe I'm misrepresenting Alcoholics Anonymous. If so, please message us. But even then, I just don't have a problem with saying, yeah. In the certain context, I'm an alcoholic Christian. Do people, whenever they introduce their, their faith in Jesus, are they mentioning their alcoholism? No. Does Greg Johnson always mention the fact that he's a gay Christian? No, he's a Christian. But in certain contexts, when you're talking about 
either sexual orientation or your struggles with alcohol, you're just going to be using some adjectives to describe yourself. And, and, and that's okay if that's, especially if it's an important, you know, in your culture, part of your testimony. Mm. I think of also, you know, some of these musicians who like, oh, I have come from this crazy background of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, they go and at a college, they're presenting this radical testimony and how they came and found Jesus. In a lot of ways, they are known by their past, their, not, sin. their past sins yeah. and potentially their remaining sinfulness, how those things still do pull at their heart if sure. that is part of their testimony. Some of them may be just saying, now I don't want to name it anymore. Praise the Lord. But is that what makes them, is that difference of whether they still have remaining uh, sinful desire or not the difference between whether they should be a leader in the church or not? I would say no. Not, I would say no. <laughs> Even though I, 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 I can appreciate, I'm a pretty strong opponent of this, these overtures, but I can appreciate, and I agree that our leaders should be oh, above reproach, above reproach on the path of holiness, like notably high standards, high standards. They should be our holy leaders. And that some people, people should really reflect on themselves before they put themselves up to be ordained. And then they should be tested by the other leaders of the church. I agree with all that stuff. But I, I'm still, I, I'm afraid that this will be weaponized against. We have some friends who are already ordained and they're, they're queer or gay or same-sex attracted in the PCA. Greg Johnson's not our friend, but we also know him, of course. So I'm, I'm afraid that this, these things will be weaponized against them. Like eventually if this passes the next year mm -hmm. and then they'll be removed, even though the people, the friends I know, and I assume Greg Johnson, they're, they're like good, faithful Christian men who are trying to, trying to follow God and lead his people well, even if they are willing to use some language and their life may look differently in some ways than others. This one, this last one that we were talking about, Overture uh, 37, is specifically about examination within the nominee process. So this one's much less likely to apply to existing uh, officers in the church. The other one talks about qualification for these offices. And that one I would guess would be more likely to be weaponized. I think what really informs the approach on a lot of these things is just this, where do you both, how do you relate to the culture? And where do you think that the, the PCA denomination is going? Are you afraid and ready to battle that we don't give uh, an inch, that we're on the slippery slope towards theological liberalism at all times and we need to defend against it? Mm. Thus, you will be wanting to make very strong statements and barriers to prevent any sliding down that slope. Mm. If your perspective is that we are well-rooted in scriptures and in God's work in the church in the past 2000 years and guiding us into his truth mm. and that out of that, we can continue to walk forward in holiness and, and aim for wiser and more effective ministry, then you're going to be less likely to want to like need to set up all these extra barriers and concerns because you don't feel like you're about to walk into a ditch. Yeah, I think that's wise. My theological ethics professor in college, he mentioned that 
in his view, theological ethics always starts first with the evaluation of the context you're in. So as you mentioned, if you think the context, we're battling against the liberals who are trying to pull us down in the sin from our holy, holy place, the holy hill that we're on, that's God's there, that really shapes how you theologize consequently. Or if we're, we're pretty solid already, but we're trying to understand this complex situation that changes how you engage the thing. But that's like a, a posture, a sensibility first. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And it's really difficult. Like, how do you, you know, <laughs> proceduralize what you think is the appropriate posture? Mm -hmm. And your posture could be very church specific, yes. could be region specific. And... And that's why I, I'm thankful for folks like Kevin DeYoung. And, and there's this other letter called a faithfulpca.net. And it was a, a letter written before General Assembly urging people to really stop slandering pastors and leaders in other regions that aren't their own, mm -hmm. but trust the, that people are in fact properly applying like doctrine and church order and are caring well for their, their, you know, their churches, their congregations and are not slipping down the slope, but that they are in fact, well-rooted, that they are being faithful to God's word and God's will. Hmm. And, and, and it was calling out some of the, the slander that has happened where people who don't know these other pastors in these other regions are critiquing them af from afar without real knowledge of both the pastor, as well as of their situation, of their ministerial context. Hmm. So it's, it's a letter that I think is worth a good read and we should put that in our show notes. Yeah, we should too. put that in the show notes. So I think now before we kind of provide our final thoughts, I just want to make one point kind of as a caveat. We need to know that among the side B community, comparing homosexuality or homosexual desire or same-sex desire or same-sex attraction, whatever, to alcoholism is... It's complicated. Not everyone likes that analogy, but right now side B, we're still working on to figure out the best analogy that we can put forward that would make sense to how we think about it. Cause there's none that have, that are readily available in my opinion that have seen like they fit so well. So we're going to talk about that, maybe hopefully in the future, but my kind of, as we wrap up now, I want to ask, so David Frank, what are your final thoughts on this? What's your final evaluation? What are some summarizing thoughts for our audience to know about? this particular situation in the Presbyterian Church of America or Presbyterian Church in America. Mm -hmm. If you are not in the PCA, pray. Pray that this denomination would be a place of both holiness and of love, the love that God says that the followers of Jesus will be known by. If you are inside the PCA, do that too. And also, Reach out to your leaders, reach out to brothers and sisters in the church and encourage healthy conversation around these things. TJ and I have strong opinions, but we want to continue to encourage conversation that is both truthful and charitable, that cares about integrity to what Jesus has called us to. And part of his call is caring for it every member of the body of Christ well. So that means listening to the people who would be affected by this and, and understanding maybe unintended consequences. And so 
I invite everybody into this as a way of loving God's church. Because, yeah, we really believe that Jesus died for his bride. And we, we want this podcast to be not just sharing opinions, but helping bring together people in loving Christ's bride well. I had a, two more thoughts. <laughs> I affirm everything that David Frank mentioned. I see this as a time for us to, especially side B people or side B people, sympathetic people who might be straight, to kind of do this intellectual task, this intellectual work of figure out how to talk about desire, how to talk about same sexual desire in particular, how to envision our doctrine of hamartiology, what's the sin is, what's, how do we think about how human beings were impacted by sin. And then also still, this is one of our goals of our podcast, how can queer people flourish? I think that's still an open intellectual question that we're trying to work in. And I really, and I'd love to figure out how we can get the church to best talk to one another and then recognize that everyone is coming from a particular cultural context. Does it mean that each cultural context is, can only, only they have the truth or that they can't be deceived? or anything, but how can we just like produce these bonds of solidarity and love and brotherhood that can allow us to actually have these tough conversations over time. So, so I'm hoping we can figure out eventually. So, yeah. And if you enjoyed this podcast episode, or at least the majority of what you've listened to, feel free to like, subscribe. And if you want to contribute to uh, TJ and I continuing to make these podcasts and inviting more voices into these conversations, mm -hmm. uh, feel free to support on Anchor. You can donate a dollar a month to help cover some of our operating costs. Yeah, see you guys next time. Bye.